Uh, if you're new with us this morning, this is a part of the service where we like to uh, take a deeper look at a portion of God's Word. And this morning we'll be in Psalm 16. But before we do that, I want to highlight a verse in last week's Psalm, Psalm 15, that uh, we touched on, but I, I just didn't spend enough time on. He said, it says this. This is the way the Psalm concludes. It says, he who does these things, meaning clings to the righteousness of God, shall never be moved. It gives us this picture of what stability looks like in the middle of a world that can only be characterized by a place as a, as a, as a kind of a place of upheaval. Uh, when I was a child, I heard this story about my grandfather, and I haven't fact-checked it because I love the way it exists in my own mind. I don't want anybody to ruin it. Uh, but my grandfather was known as this sturdy, sturdy and resilient man. He was probably most known for being hardworking. He was a hardworking guy, faithful husband and father, owned his own business. And uh, they were li- when my father was a boy, they were living in Norfolk, Virginia, which is on the East Coast, uh, really close to Virginia Beach, and a hurricane was coming through. I think this was the 60s or the, it might have been the 70s, probably 60s. And, uh, and so this isn't rare. This happens occasionally in that area, and a hurricane is coming through. And they all hunker down uh, in the house and ride out the hurricane. And, and my father was uh, a boy uh, kind of curiously looking at my grandfather because he was wearing a suit like he was going to work. But sure enough, as soon as the weather cleared up, my grandfather said, okay, I'm going to work. And he hopped in his car and just left. He drove to the office. And what they didn't know, because they didn't have... Uh, phones at the time was that the storm had not gone. They were in the middle of the eye of the storm. And so, and so as soon as he hit the road, he get, as, as he's getting near his office, it starts getting windy again and it starts raining again and he has to hide out in his downtown office in Norfolk, Virginia, riding out the rest of the storm. And I love that story because in, in, such a, in so many ways, that's a picture of, uh, of, of the things that we need to do in order to survive what can feel like just a very dangerous world, that we have to adjust to the dangers around us. And sometimes our best hope is to hunker down. And so here's the question I want to ask. What does it look like as God's people attached to him by faith to stand up, sturdy and resilient as God's people in a world that, that, that can be so chaotic and feel so dangerous to us at times. That's what we'll be talking about this morning as we look at Psalm 16. It's really a psalm of comfort and a psalm of remembrance. Hear the word of the Lord. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me 
because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let me pray. Oh, what encouraging and comforting words you give to us to look at this morning. And I pray that you would work that into our very hearts, that we would leave here people who are encouraged and comforted. So be with us, speak to us through your word. Help us to have an increasing affection for you, Jesus, our Lord and King. And help me to serve these friends well and to honor you with the things that I say. I pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So I wasn't aware of this until recently, but apparently there's a litany of Ukrainian teenagers right now that are posting online using Instagram or TikTok um, uh, what life is like for them living in a bunker in the Ukraine. Uh, that my bunker life is, uh, is what they're calling it. And you can look it up now if you want. But they're giving you a picture of what it's like to live in a bunker. They're, you know, what cooking food is like and what the sleeping arrangements are like and, and what family life is like. And the thing, the video that got me was, uh, was when a young lady uh, emerges from her bunker one morning and starts surveying new damage of, that had been done to the city uh, that had been bombed overnight and then walking to a supermarket where there were there was no food on the shelves, a lot of people standing around looking for, for something to eat. And what it does is it gives us a picture of just how terrible life is lived out in a war zone. Where you're never really immune from danger. And a refuge can make all the difference between life and death. And a picture like that, I think, gives color to David's words in verse 1, where it says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I don't know where David was when he wrote that. I like to imagine that he was on the run from Saul in a cave, and he was staring at the walls of this cave, and he's saying, The security I have right here in this cave is temporary. It's not long-lasting. There's really only one true place where I find security, and it's in It's in my relationship with the Lord. And and in so many ways, even though we're not in a cave and we're not in a bunker uh, in a war zone, we're all in the business of building security for ourselves. And I want to be clear, that's not an indictment, but it's really a way of life for us living in a fallen world the way that we are. Whether we're talking about our interests, our livelihood, our reputation or our loved ones, our security is incredibly important to us. It's a dominant interest here of David as he wrote this psalm, and it's one for us too. But what does it look like? What does real security look like? And where does it come from? And will it last? I got what does it look like? And will it last? Okay, so let's look together. First, where does it come from? Well, he places his source of security precisely in his relationship with the Lord. And we see that it's a comprehensive source, that the Lord is a comprehensive source of security or good. Verse 2 says, I have no good 
apart from you. Well, there's not one thing, not one iota of joy that he experiences that he doesn't consider a gift from God. Every place of good in his life he traces to his relationship with the Lord. Not as something he earned, but something God has given to him because he's generous to him. We also see that the Lord is a communal source of good. It's in the land, they, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. One of the good gifts that David names that God gives him for him to enjoy are also others who are attached to God by faith and members of his kingdom. And so he's not just rejoicing in the good things that God is working out in his life. He's also rejoicing in the way that God is working in the lives of those around them and the common fellowship that he has. And then finally, he sees that God is an exclusive source of good. Verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Then it's followed up by language that can actually look kind of disturbing to us where he talks about pouring out blood. If you look at verse 4, he says, uh, their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out. What he's talking about, he's just talking about pagan rituals. He's talking about worship of other gods. He says, I will not partake in that. And he, or take their names on my lips. He, he says, I'm not going to take the name of false gods on my lips. I'm going to have no part in chasing Chasing my good in places apart from the Lord. God's the exclusive source of all good for you and for those around you. And if God is the only source of good, if that's really true, if, if it's really true that he's, he's the exclusive source of all good in the world, then this challenges, this has to challenge the ways that we seek good for ourselves in places that are apart from God. And I mean, it's so easy for us. But so often the sin in our world, it can just be traced to the idea of seeking good, the same goods that God wants for us in, in ways that God does not have for us. Like when we seek the joy of friendship or security in, a, in, a, in an unhealthy or inappropriate relationship. Or we seek the, the, the joy that God wants for us in substances to the point of abuse or addiction. We're chasing something that God does want for us, that he even promises to us, but we're doing it in a destructive way. Or when we look for satisfaction in our work, that's that's something that we all struggle with. And as we chase satisfaction in in our work, if if uh, if we cheat to get there, we're chasing something that's promised to us. God promises us a day when, when our work will no longer be toil. But we're trying to get it in our way that betrays our trust that God will one day honor his promises to us. We have to get things for ourselves. And so often if we look just beneath the surface of our own sin, we're looking to achieve something good that God wants for us apart from God and his ways. And listen, we can grow by simply identifying those things and learning to say no to them. Like through accountability, and, and all, like, we can, we can grow in, in, in repentance. We can grow. But what David is doing in this psalm is he's pointing us to understanding that there's, that all true joy and all satisfaction is found in one place. He's pointing us to understand that the place of our richest contentment is found in God, and that might assuage our desire or our thirst for things that are not good for us. 
And so what David is doing is he's teaching us to learn to find our ultimate satisfaction in God, his provision and his timing. Not only is God good, but he's the only good. And after he gives us this picture of the deep satisfaction that he has in his relationship with God, with who God is, he begins to get a little more specific with just how God has been providing for him. This is where we start talking about what this looks like. Well, it looks like deep contentment in what the Lord has given to him. And first he begins talking about his wealth. And of course, that in this world, that would have to do with land. Wealth earning land that he would inherit. And so um, he, he, he attends to his contentment and the wealth that he has. And when he says in verse 5, you hold my lot. Hang on to these words. You hold my lot. And look again in verse 6. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, now this is rich, rich, beautiful, biblical language that David is using in this passage. And he's pointing back to the time when Joshua divided up the promised land amongst the people of Israel after the conquest of Canaan. Each tribe was given its portion of land by lot, okay, with boundary lines indicating the borders of their land. And this was called in several places, this was called an inheritance that they received from the Lord and passed down from generation to generation. That's what, that's what's being referenced in this, in, uh, in this verse. But, but, but there was one tribe that did not receive a portion of the land. This is from Numbers 18. God said to the Levites, the the tribe of priests, you shall have no inheritance in their land. Neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. Remember what David said in verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Just like the priests and the Levites entered into a special relationship with God, David is claiming the same kind of relationship. And he's saying that whatever he has, whatever he has, whether it's in much or in little, in terms of material wealth, he finds true joy and real peace in understanding that real safety and real security does not come from his wealth but from knowing God and living in his presence. And in his presence, that's where he finds one of the wealthiest of gifts, wisdom. Verse 7, the Lord gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. It says that God is teaching him. And giving him wisdom as to how he should live and how he should think about the things in front of him. God is this unending and constant source of wisdom for him day and night. And all this yields the stability that we all long for. Verse 8, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Now, remember who David was. When he was a teenager, he faced off with a giant who wanted to kill his people armed only with a sling and a stone. 
And when he was an officer in Saul's army, people wrote songs about him in battle, okay? And when he was on the run, he led a guerrilla warfare. His, his, his army was like our version of special forces. And when he became king, he was a shrewd diplomat. If ever there was a guy that we could look at and say, this person can take care of themselves, it would be David. And yet even David is saying that the only source of identity, the only source of security, the only source of comfort is found in his relationship with the Lord. This is where his stability is placed. It's the only place. And it occurs to me that knowing this is true and living like it is are two different things. I mean, oh, the ways that we could count that we live as if, as if God isn't truly God. And that, 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 uh, that we consider the decisions we make as if God doesn't exist. Or if he does, he doesn't care. Or, or the ways that we can feel the pressures that we're not suited to handle. Simply because we forget that, that God is near. The immense value of the psalm, and this is what I want you to hear. The immense value of the psalm isn't given to us isn't, is that it's given to us that we would be formed according to the comfort that belongs to those who are attached to God. He, he, it, this isn't just for David to proclaim. This is something that he, he writes in order that he would be shaped by it. And then he gives it to the people to pray and sing repeatedly that they would become a people that could truly trust that this is true of who God is and of their relationship to him. And that when we pray this psalm, we begin to believe it. And when we believe it, we begin to live like it. That we will be formed in this way over time. There was an article written recently by this remarkable woman named uh, Jennifer Bryson. And she was, believe it or not, she was uh, an interrogator for the U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency... And she was stationed at Guant- in Guantanamo Bay. Um, just imagine that work. That would be in front of her. She did make clear early in her article that all of our understandings of interrogation bear no resemblance to whatever we've seen, whatever we've seen on TV. But she was also a Christian. She described herself as a young Christian. This is, the, this is what she said. She described herself as a Christian who lacked the foundation she needed to faithfully endure the challenge of navigating the intersection of her faith and her work. She said she realized her need for a robust conscience to determine how to do her work. I had a conscience, she said, but it was largely uninformed and dormant. And, and if I could say one, that, is, that can so easily be, be true of any one of us. That we could be real in faith and yet shallow in its exercise. It doesn't mean you don't have faith, but what is its power to govern how you live and work in the world? How powerful is it to govern your conscience or give you stability or remind you the truth of who God is? Now, the Lord provided for her through faithful friends, but here's what she says she learned. I'm going to read this to you. It's really astounding. She said, what I learned from my time at Guantanamo is that the time to deliberate seek advice, and reflect for long periods of time in prayer so that, so that we have a conscience that can stand on solid footing just when it matters exists only ahead of time. 
when one can't foresee the curveballs. Conscience is, after all, not a rabbit one can suddenly pull out of a magic hat. It is something that must be cultivated and developed over time so that it is available and ready to go when one of those just-when-it-matters moments comes our way. Here's what I'm getting at. The life in front of you is full of what Jennifer Bryson would call curveballs. And you might be fielding one right now. You've certainly handled some in the past. I can guarantee you there are those that are in front of you. You are living out the days that God has given to you in an unpredictable world amongst unpredictable people facing unpredictable challenges. How are you going to cultivate the awareness in your inner being that stabilizes you in the midst of all that chaos? David's prayer is not just a proclamation of the way that God has been good to him, although it is that. It's a prayer of formation that reminds him of the essential truths he needs when he faces the world. And I would propose that you need those too. We don't need this prayer once. We need it repeatedly. That we would be shaped over time to really believe the truth of these things. That we would learn to live as if these things are really true. And wouldn't you want that? Wouldn't you want to be able to look at the saints and the Holy Land and saying, in them is all my delight? Wouldn't you love to be able to say from your heart, you make known to me the path of life in your presence, there is fullness of joy? I mean, doesn't that sound wonderful? Well, that's what David is calling us, to believe and to live like this is true. And here's the thing. We're not talking about something that's true for a season. That when we pray this prayer or sing it like David's people would have done, we're proclaiming to our hearts something that's eternally true. And as you already know, any source of security is only as valuable as it is long-lasting. How long will God remain David's source of security? How long will this last? Will God always be David's refuge. Is God always available for that? Look at verse 9. My heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. That's whole-bodied confidence, right? Continuing in verse 10, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. That would be the realm of the dead. Or let your Holy One see corruption. That, that, That describes the decomposing of a body after death. You will not allow those things to your Holy One. Now this is astounding because what David is writing about is life after death. What David is writing about actually is the resurrection. Now David probably didn't know who he was talking about, but he knew knew it would be somebody in his family line. The passage that we looked at earlier in the service, Peter calls him a prophet, Um, someone that would come along and even in death, his body wouldn't be corrupted. Interesting thing about these verses. You might have noticed last week uh, that our whole sanctuary was red and and it's not anymore. Um, So like I totally whiffed in explaining what was going on. But last Sunday was the Sunday that the church around the world remembers Pentecost. 
And Pentecost was the time when the Holy Spirit was poured out on God's people after Jesus' ascension. And, uh, and Peter and 3,000 people confessed for the first time that Jesus was their king, that they believed in the resurrection and they professed faith in Jesus. It was an astounding moment. And at that time, Peter preached a sermon in Jerusalem. We read an excerpt of it uh, earlier in the service. And in that sermon, he quoted this psalm. And he said, this is about Jesus, that David, a prophet, was writing about Jesus's resurrection that was to come. And here's why our hearts can be interminably glad that just as God would not abandon Jesus from the grave, but raised him on the third day, all those who belong to Jesus by faith enjoy the same comfort. Paul was writing about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 when he said this. He said, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. That's your future. Listen, it's not an abstract idea. That's your future. It's a promise for you, etched in the blood of Jesus himself. Every time we baptize a child as a congregation, it's always an incredibly sweet moment when that happens. Um, but this church has a tradition that I've just fallen, I mean, I've fallen in love with. And we, after the baptism, the whole congregation sings to the child, I am Jesus' little lamb. It's incredibly sweet. And if you've been going here for really any amount of time, you probably have that first verse memorized, right? Because there have been a lot of babies. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but have you ever heard the third verse of that song? Let me read it to you. It says, Should I not always be glad? None of whom Jesus loves are sad. And when this short life is ended, those whom the good shepherd tended will be taken to the skies and there to dwell in paradise. So a friend of mine told me recently, That the word comfort isn't soft. Like we think about a comforter. Or we think people that might need comfort are soft. It actually comes from the Latin cum forte, which means with strength. It's the same word we get the word fortitude from. And that's my hope for you as we look at this psalm, that your comfort in Jesus would fortify you and give you strength to stand up even in the middle of what can feel like a dangerous world. Let me pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, what goodness you give to us, what peace and what comfort comes to us from knowing Jesus. Would you instruct our hearts in knowing that these things are true? Give us this comfort. Hold us in comfort while we wait for you. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.